Welcome to Beyond, conversations with artists, makers, explorers who have gone outside of the norm to create their own true world, to sing their own precious song. Each of us was born with a song inside, but most will die having never sung it. Imagine if, as a little child, instead of being asked, what will you do when you grow up? What will you be? Or what kind of job will you get when you grow up? If instead you are told, now is the time to listen. As you grow, listen for the sounds of your song. The song that comes from your blood, your bones, your people. Listen for the melody, the verses, the tune. And when you hear your song, sing it. Imagine that kind of world. That's the kind of world I'm devoted to building. I am your host, Daphne Cohn, the creator of multiple online programs, courses, and within a community for artists, makers, and writers dedicated to the courage and practice of singing their own song. I ask you, are you ready to sing your own song? Are you ready to go beyond? In the last solo cast, I spoke of the fear that always accompanies singing one's own song, crafting one's own life, the fear that's rooted in ancient biological programming aimed at keeping us safe and secure. You can listen to that one if you want to hear all about the fear. (laughs) In this solo cast, I want to share stories of my own listening, of finding my own way in a prescribed world of right and wrong, safe and smart. For me, it's always begun with a feeling, a knowing. And in each story that I'm about to share, I followed the feeling more than I followed the logical, the rational. I want to just actually put a little caveat in here. When I talk about stories of my own listening, of finding my own way, it's really important to me to emphasize that this is an ever-evolving process, that the journey is always changing. We have this thing in our culture, in Western culture, says know who you are, be who you are. Like it's a fixed identity, that it's something you can figure out and then be for your life. I don't believe that at all. And I feel very strongly that who I am, that there is nothing fixed about it, that Maybe there's an essence, there is some essence to Daphne and this story of who I am is constantly changing as new information comes in, as I'm exposed to new experiences, as I widen and grow and expand, the who that I am changes And that's a big part of listening for your song, crafting your own life, is that willingness to be flexible, to hold it as loosely as possible. This is something that I go back and forth with. Sometimes I feel like I'm quite good at, and other times (laughs) I hold on really tightly to whatever possible thing I feel like I know. That is the caveat I wanted to offer as I go into the sharing of my stories. So there's many stories, of course, as there are many stories in everyone's life, but I'll start with one that I feel most directly, most obviously leads to the life that I'm living now. 
I was living in Grenoble, France for my junior year abroad of college. And when I'd left for Grenoble, I was very much in love with my first like real boyfriend, you know, my first real love, I should say. And then, uh, he wrote me a couple months in to tell me that he wanted to break it off. You know, he wanted to end the relationship, but he ended up flying out in December over the break. And I had these high hopes that we would see each other and stars would shine and rainbows would appear in the sky and we'd be totally in love and he'd know that he wanted to be with me, which was not at all what happened. <laughs> it was one of the worst weeks of my life and it was the last time that we were together. It was also my first big heartbreak. I remember in the apartment that I was in, there were these shades that you could roll down. They were like wooden shades. You could roll them down and when you rolled them down, they basically blacked out the light, the sun. So the room became completely dark and I would roll them down and just sleep as long as I possibly could. Wanting to just sleep my life away, really. I did obviously come out of that, but a few months later, when people were starting to talk about the end of the year and what they were going to be doing for their summer and talking about going back to the United States, I knew that I was not ready to return to the States. I, I was not ready. So I was leafing through this magazine that someone had given me, like an outdoor adventures kind of magazine or some volunteer type thing. This was pre-internet days. And there, towards the back, an ad about maybe three lines long. So it was like not even an inch tall. It was a small little ad. And on the ad, there was a name, which was Chandi Dasa Ashram, an address, and an invitation to study Gandhian principles of ahimsa or nonviolence while volunteering. That's it. <laughs> but I knew I had to go. So I wrote a letter to this address and sent it. And I waited and waited because it was going to Bali. So who knew how long it was going to take? Oh yeah, it was in Bali. Forgot to mention that. So it was in Indonesia. Um, heard nothing. And it was getting closer and closer to the summer. And I had to make a decision. So I hadn't heard anything. But I decided I'm going to do this. I don't care. I'm going to do this. So I took out a student loan. And bought a plane ticket. And began making preparations. And then a few weeks before I was scheduled to leave. I heard back one little letter. Yes, please come. <laughs> That was pretty much it. No other information as far as I can remember. There was really nothing, and but I knew that I had to go. So I flew to Bali, basically knowing nothing about Bali. I bought like a little phrase book of Bahasa Indonesia, which is their language, the basic language, and learned a few phrases, one of which was, I don't want to have my teeth extracted. Not really sure why I learned that phrase, but I did. Fortunately, I didn't have to use it. And I got on the plane and my only plan was that when I landed, I was going to find my way to this ashram. I was 20 years old. Months later, that same year, people would tell me, oh my gosh, you're so brave. But I didn't feel like brave. It felt essential. I could hear the calling in my bones and I had to listen. So I'm on the plane and sitting next to me on the plane 
is this man who seemed much older than me at the time. He was 36, but he seemed, he seemed a lot older. And he was someone who went to Bali several times a year because he bought art there and he brought it back to the U.S. to sell. This time he was also hoping to get a visa for his Balinese wife. It had been two years since they married and still no visa. So he, we were talking and he asked me, what are you going to do when you get off the plane? Where are you going? How are you going to get there? I was like, I, I don't know. I have this address and I'll figure it out. That was my philosophy. But he knew Bali a lot better, obviously, than I did. So he said to me, listen, I'll take you to the ashram. If you like it, you can stay. If you don't like it, I'll bring you to where I'm staying with my wife and you can stay there and make arrangements for whatever the next thing is. And I don't know why, but I completely trusted him. And I've leaned on that trust many times in my life and it has never failed me, not once. So at the time I thought, okay, yeah, I'll listen to him. Here's this guy on this plane. I now realize he was not just a guy on the plane. He was one of the many angels that have appeared in my life over the years. Turns out it was a blessing that he took me because I don't know how I would have found the place. No one we asked had heard of it. We went from driver to driver to driver, which I wouldn't have known even how to do. Finally, after many conversations in Balinese, I didn't speak, that he spoke, finally we found someone who was willing to like help us figure it out as we went. And then we got there. And I can still remember the moment that I first saw the ashram. I remember standing just at the edge of it, looking out at it. It's pretty small. It was like three buildings. It was, it was small, small place. And I remember the way the buildings were like barely holding themselves together and that they were really just cement floors with pillars that led to the sky. There were no walls. It was wide open and it was just cement. And then off to the side on the ground was this big cauldron with these three very old looking women sitting around it, both stirring the pot and cutting vegetables on a piece of wood on the ground. And they were the ones who prepared the food for the ashram. And I remember how the paint was peeling and there was no electricity, there was no running water. And I began to cry a little bit because this was not what I was used to and it was not what I expected. So Matt, he sees this and he turns to me and he says, how about this? How about I take you around the island for a few days? give you a chance to adjust, see what life in Bali is like. And then at the end of the three days, if you want, I'll bring you back. It's like, okay, sounds good. So he took me to this place where he was staying with his wife. And for the next three days, we traveled around the island and I met all these, they were all men, because I think that's just the culture, these Balinese men. And they were all artists. And we would just sit with them and they would show me their masks. They were, he was collecting masks, the masks they made. They would talk to me either through Matt translating or if they knew a little English, they'd speak some English about art and life. It was a remarkable experience that this man shows up on this plane and then ends up taking me around the island for three days to people who are these big artists of the island sitting in their little cement 
somewhat building-like buildings. I mean, again, no walls and very simple. And just getting to connect with them and to see this land. And I would then go home and I would sleep on my tatami mat with geckos above me and kerosene lighting. And, and then at the end of three days, I was ready to go back. And so Matt took me back. The next two months changed me forever. I rose, we rose at 4 a.m. to gather on the cement floor with about 30 children, ages 7 to 17, children who were from poor farming families, and they'd been sent here to help run the ashram in exchange for room and board and the chance to learn some English by studying Gandhi and, and peace. The woman who ran it was a 70-year-old woman who was Balinese but had grown up in the Netherlands, so she spoke English fluently and was this tiny woman but a powerhouse, a powerhouse of a woman. I think she did like 108 sun salutations every morning. And every morning, so we would all gather and we would meditate and we would always sing Cat Stevens' Morning Has Broken, which I love. And then we would eat a simple breakfast from coconut bowls and then sit around often for hours pulling kapok seeds out of kapok. It's like a form of cotton to stuff into pillows and mattresses. Sometimes we went to neighboring farms and helped them with the harvest in exchange for some of the food to take home. We went on hikes in the hills and the mountains. I did yoga with a Swami from Australia who was visiting for several weeks and was in a lot of quiet because the kids spoke almost no English, and I spoke very little Indonesian. I learned a few more phrases while I was there, but I mostly was quiet. It was the first time in my life that I'd been that quiet. It was the first time in my life without phones, checklists, being busy. The world moved so slow, and you just rose before the sun. You followed the flow of the day and then fell asleep to the sounds of birds and mosquitoes. And when you wanted to take a shower, you dumped a bucket of cold water over your head. It was the simplest life I'd ever lived. I was always too tired in the morning to get up, but I loved the meditation anyway. I loved the yoga. I loved the peace. And it was the happiest that I'd felt in many, many months. So I began while I was there to study Buddhism and Hinduism I would watch as the buses would pull over to the side of the road to offer incense at one of the many altars along the road. I saw how ritual was part of every day in the simplest and most beautiful of ways. How these altars were everywhere and offerings were a constant practice. How there was always time to bless and pray. How there was no separation between the practical and the spiritual. So when I got home, I wanted more. I began reading Thich Nhat Hanh. I carried his book, Being Peace, around with me for the rest of my time at college, always in my backpack. And I read Suzuki Roshi's Beginner's Mind. I would go to different services trying to find what was right. I went to a local Quaker service. I went to some Buddhist ones. I went to a meditation circle. But nothing spoke to me in the way that my time in Bali spoke to me. Story number two, it's four years later, and this is when I hear the next obvious verse in my song. I had graduated, and I had a double 
major in women's studies and French lit, which basically said unemployable. So I worked a few temp jobs and I traveled some more, but I was feeling pretty lost at the end of these couple years. And there was a friend that I had, Jeffrey, who told me a little while back about this Buddhist Zen center in Northern California, which is where I was living. And you could go as a farm apprentice and then they would house you and feed you, but you also had to do the practice, which meant you would go to meditation, you'd go to classes, you followed the schedule. Now, again, I'm not someone who's particularly inclined to want to follow a schedule. I knew very little about meditation and had no consistent meditation practice. And yet I knew that I had to go. He told me about it in February and the farm apprenticeship started at the end of April. At the time when he told me I had no, I was out of a temp job. So I had no job. I had no place to live. I was like pretty aimless. I thought I gotta go to this farm apprenticeship. The next day, I kid you not, the next day I meet up with a friend. I tell her about it and she goes, oh, I think I have somebody who needs a house sitter. Why don't we call her and see? So we called her. She needed a house sitter for the exact days that I was looking for a home, which were the middle of the month. It was like from February 13th to April 23rd. Not a typical period of time. And then I called an old boss this home was in Davis where I went to school. So I called an old boss and she said, yeah, you can have your job back for, for the next couple months. I was selling bread at farmer's markets. She's like, yeah, come on in. We'll find you something. So within a few days, I had a place to live and I had a job. And that's what I did until April 23rd. And then I went to the Zen Center. And when I first got there, well, first of all, it's a very quiet place. You arrive and something in you just says, shh. <laughs> like you just start talking quieter, you start walking more slowly, speaking more softly. It's just a quiet place. And I still was like, I don't know about this. But again, the illogical part of me was like, you have to do this. The rational part of me was like, what? but I just kept following that other part of me. So for these six months, I slept in a room in the basement with two other farm apprentices. Like I said, we got up at 4.30 every morning. We meditated from five to 6.30, which was then followed by chanting and temple cleaning and then breakfast. And then every couple of months we would say sashin, uh, which is a period of meditation for five to seven days, meditating from 5 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. with a two-hour break in the afternoon to do some work and to rest. There was no talking, no writing or reading, just quiet. So the farm apprenticeship was six months, and I ended up staying three years. When I left, it was because I'd met my future husband, and I was going to move back with him to Brooklyn. I loved my time at Green Gulch Farm. I loved the study and the silence. I loved how you bowed at an altar before you went into the bathroom, dining room, or tool shed. How there was a way to eat in the meditation hall, to step, to sit, to bow, this way of ritual. I loved how much care went into all of it and how committed each person was to their own waking up and how much beauty there was in the intention, the dedication, and devotion. When I left, I thought, I can take this practice out into the world. I got this. I've been here three years. 
but the world is fast and it's busy and it takes tremendous discipline to commit to something that is so different from everything around you. And then we started a family, had two kids. I started business online. It was 2008, a good time to be starting things online. And I really wanted some kind of a business that had to do with what I had been learning these years at the ashram, at the Zen center. But I wasn't really sure how to do that. And I was not strong in confidence around it. And so instead I went into nutrition and health because that seemed a much safer bet. And that's what I did in the beginning. And then things would shift and change over the years. I kept working on it on like, what is this business and how is it me? And each iteration was closer, but it, it wasn't quite it. I actually, I want to pause here to say that I did not come from a spiritual family. In my home, the mind was God. And we read, we wrote, we did well in school. Learning was the practice. And I love learning. So this was a beautiful thing. And there was nothing spiritual if we're going to define spiritual as something, its own distinct thing, um, there wasn't any, like, as we think of spiritual, that was not part of my life. So this thing that brought me to an ashram in Bali and then a Zen center in Northern California was not part of my upbringing. And yet it was part of me. Throughout this time, I did meditate, but not consistently. I'd have little altars, but I'd forget about them. My attention was really on being a mom and running a business. And then my kids grew up and my daughter left for college. And two years later, my son graduated high school and he went on to college. And our house got really quiet again. And in the quiet, I could hear my song. Which began this year with a lumen. So last October, there was, again, something beyond my rational mind that told me to start this creativity hour. One hour a day, five days a week, make it free. And again, I was not the kind of person to commit to anything every day, much less be the one who's responsible for it. But I knew in the same way I knew I had to go to Bali, that I had to stay at Zen Center, I knew that I had to do a lumen. I waited until January, put it off, put it off. And then I started it Monday, January 3rd. At the beginning of Illumin, I cried almost every day. Something was happening. I didn't know what it was. Something was changing me. I had no words. I would cry saying the opening blessing. I would cry saying the closing one. I would get off of Illumin and I would just weep. And the poet, David White, he says, we often name things too early. So I tried not to name it and just notice. People would say, what do you love about a lumen? Why is a lumen so powerful for you? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) It just is. I don't know. But what I see now is my practice was coming back. So I rose every morning. That's one piece of it. I rose every morning with, and still do, with at least two hours before a lumen to find my center, to meditate, to do yoga, make my tea, to come into the sacred space that I was committed to creating. Little by little, I started to see that I was adding more of this sacred into the ordinary by bringing in blessings and candles, 
incense, intention, and then words kept coming to the surface. Words like listen, soften, slow, open, and then the loudest word of all, devotion. Devotion. Devotion is the name of my song. I know that now, at least up until now, because like I say, it can change. But it's been there a long time. Devotion, it's an interesting word, usually associated with religion. And I did not see myself as someone who lived a devoted life. So I kind of played with this word. I played with different ideas about it. Is it devotion to the mystery? Is it to creativity? And then one day I was reading the book, Bittersweet by Susan Cain. And she talks about meeting this young woman who is leading the center in Toronto. And it's a Sufi center. And she's sharing her story. And, and her father is also part of the story. And her father is telling what is the essence of Sufism. And he says, it's all about devotion to the beloved. I was like, that's it. It's the beloved. It's devotion to the beloved. Again, still very vague. Don't really know what that means. I just knew it was right. And what I keep seeing with this whole practice, this whole process, is how much it is just about listening and paying attention to those moments when my whole body, my whole being says yes. It may not make sense. It may be strange or not right in our culture, but yes, I hear yes, which is scary because it leaves me without a plan. It's more of a following. I don't know where any of this is taking me, but as Boyd Varty, who I've mentioned before, says, this is like one of the mottos or the mantras of one of the trackers that he talks about in his book, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. I don't know where I'm going, but I know how to get there. And for me, how I get there is by listening and then following. Listening, following. Sometimes I'm really good at this. Sometimes I suck at it. I'm definitely much better than I used to be. And I'm learning that my song sounds like spirit and practice, attention, intention. It sounds like communion with and full body listening. And above all, it sounds like devotion. So this is how I'm creating my life through devotion. And I have a feeling that it's going to start to change who ends up being guests on a podcast, what I talk about in my newsletter, what I share on social media. As I get more and more courage to speak to what is the thing that is most alive in me, it will change how I show up. And the thing that I hold in my head, in my heart, is that all of this is not about what you might think or what my neighbor might think. It's about me and listening for the sound 
of my song. It's about you and listening for the sound of your song that nobody else sings. So I wish you so much joy and love, ease and grace as you listen for the sounds of your song and as we together begin to sing our own songs. If this moved you or inspired you in some way, take time with it. Let the words settle in. And if you feel called to share this episode with someone else, please do. For all show notes and past episodes and to learn about all offerings, go to DaphneCone.com or WithinCommunity.com or IlluminHour.com. And if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that over on iTunes or Spotify, and you can review it over at iTunes. If you'd like to be part of Illumin, come whenever it fits your schedule. We will be here making. And thank you for listening.